Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have Kyle Bame. Kyle is a professional grappler, a 10th Planet Black Belt, awarded by John Botello. As of this recording, Kyle trains at Gio Martinez, 10th Planet Oceanside Academy. Kyle has competed against the best in the world, some of his accomplishments. First place, BJJ Fanatics Grand Prix. First place, King of the Mats Invitational, winning the Subversive Team Tournament and winning the Ana Invitational, and on and on. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify, and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Please leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show, and consider becoming a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Get ad-free episodes, and sometimes the early episodes, at anchor.fm forward slash foreverwhitebelt forward slash subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and TikTok at foreverwhitebelt. Check us out on Instagram at foreverwhitebeltshow. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at Teespring, that's T-E-E-Spring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at Marin's Premier Jiu-Jitsu Academy, North Bay Jiu-Jitsu, just north of San Francisco. They're amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Kyle Bame. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you're a lifelong athlete. You've done, it seems like in my research, you've done, it seems to be like everything. And there's rock climbing, there's rugby and all kinds of stuff. Basketball, the usual sports as well. And uh, you've lived, it seems like all over the world or in one point or the other, or been to places all over the place doing all kinds of amazing things and experience all kinds of cool lifelong lessons there. So I'm sure that's sort of created who you are. But one thing I was trying to figure out is where you're at now. I know you're a 10th Planet Black Belt under John Batella. Where are you at now in terms of training? I'm in Oceanside, which is North County, San Diego. So I'm training at Gio Martinez's gym. Congratulations on your latest victory as of this recording. Yes. And that was a subversive, right? Yes, that's correct. It was a combat jiu-jitsu tournament. So it was a team tournament. We had three members of our team. It was myself, Ryan Aiken, and Juliana Forchina. I believe her last name was pronounced. And uh, we had Ryan at 185 pounds. Our female was 150. And then I was the open weight, heavyweight competitor. So it was best of three. We would go through two teams on our side of the bracket. And then we met an MMA team in the finals. So they had it like four jujitsu teams on one side and then four MMA teams on the other side. Did you so like that, was uh, set up and everything? I liked it. I thought they did it. It was well organized. I was surprised by how much harder the heavyweights hit with the palm strikes because I've mm-hmm. done combat jiu-jitsu three times previously, but it was always somebody at my own weight. So this time I was giving up like 30, 35 pounds to some of the guys, a couple of my first guys. So they hit really hard. <laughs> I can't imagine. And, and you have a previous MMA experience as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm 3-0 and in MMA as well. And now do you find that you just transitioned to BJJ because you can take less, although you're doing combat jujitsu, you can take less of, of that type of punishment and people can actually make a living doing jujitsu nowadays to yeah, some extent. It's all about not taking head trauma as far as mm-hmm. I'm concerned. It's really important to me. You were happy with the rule set? Yeah, they did well. Uh, they had the get down rule, which is where if the two opponents are wrestling for more than a minute, they are placed on the mat and one person is on bottom with butterfly hooks and double butters. And they just determine who's on top and who's on bottom. They go back and forth. So if there's another get down, then the other person will be on top. Well, it's sort of a way of forcing the action if they're just sort of stalling each other out with wrestling. 
Can you talk about your time now at Geo's? What's that like? It's amazing. That's my favorite gym that I've ever trained at. We've got a really good stable of high-level guys, myself, Gio, Kyle Chambers, Ricky, Lule. And then we've got a bunch of killer up-and-comer brown belts as well to train with. And then just a whole stable of blue belts and purple belts that have got a lot of potential as well. A lot of really exciting things happening at the gym. What's the culture like at that particular academy? It's really laid back, not traditional at all. We just kind of do things our own way and everybody does their best to leave their egos at the door and we just go in there to get better. And nobody worries too much about tapping, at least not the higher belts. And we try to instill that idea in the lower belts as well, that you're going to tap thousands of times before you get to any type of world-class level. So just get used to it, get comfortable with tapping. It's just training. It doesn't count for anything. That's sort of the um, mentality we try to have when we're training there. What did the training for subversive look like? So for me, I was just being aware of when I was playing guard that I was uh, making sure not to be in a position where I could take damage. But I didn't really train with strikes for this one. When I would be in an advantageous position, I would faint palm strikes, but I wasn't actually hitting anybody. So my training really didn't differ that much for combat jiu-jitsu from what I just do for normal jiu-jitsu tournaments. Now, as far as conditioning and things like that, what, what were you doing? Uh, well, outside of hard rolls, I generally do swim sprints for my cardio training. I'll put a minute on the clock or maybe a minute 30, just depending on how long I'm swimming or how far of a distance I'm going with each interval. And then I'll go and then whatever amount of time is left on the clock, that's the amount of time that I rest. So there's you're incentivized to get the sprint done as quickly as possible. That way you have the most amount of time left to rest. You know, so let's say you give yourself a minute and 20 seconds and you're sprinting 50 meters. So you go back and forth, do the 50 meters, and then maybe you have 20 seconds left to rest. And then when the 120 is up, then you go again and then you just keep going and you do as many rounds as you can. Wow, that's fascinating. You're the first person that I've talked to of many professional athletes that have ever brought up the swim sprints. That's uh, interesting. Really? Is that Why is that in particular that you've incorporated that into your You, you know, know um, Eddie actually uh, recommended that to us years ago. And I think John Jacques Machado had recommended it to him. And it makes sense because it's uh, full body cardio. So you're simulating grappling in that sense. And then also it simulates the sort of uh, sprint interval pace that you get with a grappling match where you'll have a period of relatively low movements and you're stagnant and then you'll have periods of scrambling where you're going close to 100% of your output for a brief period as well and then you'll have a lower movement period where you recover and then you'll have another sprint so you just have to keep hitting those sprints throughout the night throughout the night of competition and recovering in between each one so doing the interval sprints especially with something where it's not just uh, running but it's a full body cardio thing like like swimming, I felt simulated the pace of a jiu-jitsu match pretty well. Mm. So I thought the answer would be perhaps centered around, I was reading about your injuries that you've had and holy smokes, your knees, my God. Yeah, my knees messed up. <laughs> can, you, can you explain to the audience like the amount of the history of your knees? Yeah. So my right knee is the one that's really screwed up. I had my MCL, my ACL, my LCL, and both my medial and lateral meniscus uh, completely torn. So I had bucket handles in both the medial and lateral meniscus, and then I had ruptures of the ACL, MCL, and LCL, and a partial tear of the PCL as well. So I had the whole knee done, uh, reconstructed my ACL, LCL, repaired my MCL, and then I had meniscectomies on both meniscus. 
And this was the result of four different injuries dating back to high school football, actually. It was the first tear of the ACL. And then I had a tear on my MCL in competition. I had a tear of the PCL and the LCL and the rest of the ACL from, uh, from so they had me in a lockdown. My knee, it was my own fault. I, I was at a kind of a weird angle in their lockdown and they extended their lockdown, I think, to come up on dogfight or something. And it just went pop, pop, pop. And then uh, I think I had meniscus tears on my medial and lateral meniscus from one of those three along the way as well. Bucket handles on both of those. And then they were originally just going to do meniscectomy because what was actually causing the knee to lock up was the bucket handle tear getting caught in the joint. But I said, this was uh, 2017. I said, you know, I'm going to be competing for a long time. So I would just assume you do the entire knee and then I'll have, I won't just be uh, re-injuring it because it's Hmm. compromised already. So, so I had everything done, everything but the PCL, because that was only a partial tear. I read that there was a part where you did have some tearing and you trained, you opted not to get the surgery at one point. Yeah. Yeah. That was after that first D bar. This was my first tournament at Brown Belt. And uh, I took a couple weeks off. It was really swollen up like a balloon. And I took a couple weeks off and then went back to training and I was able to train more. And I had uh, the qualifier for EBI absolutes coming up and I uh, didn't want to pull out. So I kept going. And then during camp for that, somebody had me in the, in the lockdown and that's when it popped and the LCL, the lateral meniscus and the PCL went. So then everything was almost either ruptured or bucket handled or partially torn. I don't know about the extremity of the, your knee injuries, but this this is sort of a common story with jujitsu practitioners and our knees. So I'm going <laughs> to drill on this quite a bit. What would have you done differently? What worked out for you? Yeah, for sure. I would have had the surgery after the first major injury where I got the MRI and it turned out that I had the MCL, ACL totally torn and the medial meniscus bucket handled. I should have gotten surgery right then. That way it would have, because what happens is your knee is compromised when it gets injured and collagen doesn't, to my knowledge, just repair on its own. So if your knee's already compromised, the next time you get stress put on it with some type of joint lock, or even in my case where it wasn't even a submission, it was just the lockdown being extended, it's already compromised. So now it's just going to tear again in a, the strong, uh, the weakest point at this point, and then something else is going to tear. So it just keeps getting more and more compromised to the mm-hmm. point where you can't roll on it anymore. So my advice would be as soon as you find out you've got a rupture of some sort, ACL, LCL, MCL, one of these things, I would go ahead and get the surgery because arthroscopic surgery these days is excellent. You just need to find a surgeon who does knees on a regular basis and uh, you should be fine. Just wait. It's in my opinion, it's kicking the can down the road. If you want to keep competing athletically and injuries, a lot of the time they're inevitable, you know, so it's just best, I would say, to get the surgery done if you have something major torn in your knee. And so many people do that, kicking the can down the road all the time too. Yeah. Yeah, I did. What did the PT look like? I mean, what was effective? What wasn't? I was uh, with this physical therapist who had me do a lot of body weight exercises where I was doing one-legged squats. And then I would off of the one-legged squat where I had the the left leg up because I was doing them on my right leg. I would bring the left leg behind me and I would do kind of a like a bow type of motion. And then uh, I would touch on the ground, different spots. It was really all about stability, like building up stability moving on one leg Hmm. and uh, reinforcing the muscles around the injured ligaments. Are you doing resistance training as well, you know, outside of the pool? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I was doing band work actually. 
So my physical therapist would hold bands and then I would apply pressure against that resistance. And then I had a, one of those big balls as well, where I would do a, um, a hamstring curl type of motion against the ball mm. in order to strengthen those muscles as well. So I was doing like light resistance work, building up to the point where eventually I got back on the mats and was able to do uh, some positional live goes. So first I started with drilling with just a dummy and then I started drilling with a partner. And then eventually we started doing live goes that weren't really intensive on the leg. So for example, I would try to escape from what we call the spider web position, which is an arm bar and uh, tell people not to scoop my leg when I was escaping. So I could just work on those, uh, getting those reps, that upper body submission defense without stressing the knee too much while I was still recovering. Interesting. So a lot of situational drilling kind of stuff. Yeah. Things that are more controlled. The last thing I got back into was actually live training, just free for all where no specific instructions behind it just because there's so many unpredictable things that can happen and then wrestling was like the very last thing that i did but doing specific position live goes were a great way to like start dipping my feet back in the water rolling without being in too much of an uncontrolled situation where the knee could potentially get re-injured so roughly what were the sort of the, the timing milestones here so I had the surgery November 22nd, 2017, and then I was drilling with a dummy by March of 2018. And then I was on the mats in April doing some light drilling. And then I think like the end of April and May, I was probably back to like live drilling in specific positions. And then I competed at the end of August of 2018. That was the EBI and subversive trials. So there was a trials for a 205 pound subversive spot. And then there was a trials for a super fight at the combat jujitsu 185 pound EBI. That was the one that Thor won. Competing after about eight months or nine months. That's amazing. Did you feel confident at that final nine month point? I felt like, um, you know, I had been rolling live and nothing was happening. So the knee was holding up. But after that, first trials back, I felt a lot more of a boost in confidence just because competition, no matter what, it just is a little bit different than training. People don't go 150% in, in training the way that they do in competition where there's everything's on the line. So after I got through that and everything was uh, intact with the knee and everything was good to go, I was a lot more uh, confident going forward. It seems like the majority of your finishes just statistically is outside heel hooks. Are there other aspects of your game that the general public just we haven't seen yet? Yeah, I would say my guard passing is one of those aspects and uh, takedowns as well. Just because you don't see a lot of uh, takedowns and submission only since there's no points scored for it. And takedowns, in my opinion, they, they're they like the uh, greatest amount of energy expenditure, putting somebody on their back for not a lot of gain from it if it's submission only. So takedowns, although people did get to see some of that in ADCC, um, I took a couple of people down with wrestle ups, but I like to show more just pure wrestling because I did wrestle growing up and I can wrestle. So I'd like to uh, get a lot more pure wrestling in, which I think I will just because um, that's where I felt like I could have really uh, made a difference in my last ADCC was just having the, the pure wrestling to put people down and score points that way. That and probably guard passing as well. I got to show a guard pass in the finals of that subversive, but I'd like to show more of a top game in the future. And I think that's kind of where my game is evolving to is being more evened out with the top game and the bottom game. Like I've shown that I can play guard at the highest level, but now I'd like to show more uh, passing as well, attacking the guard from the top, et cetera. 
So you were also, you've been like uh, teaching as well, right? I'll teach every now and then sort of a substitute teaching position at the 10th Planet Oceanside. So when one of our guys make class, then I'll cover for them. But uh, nothing permanent at the moment, just training at the moment. But in the past, though, you've have taught at other academies. You've yes. done seminars yes, I, I was, and the whole thing. Oh, yeah. I've been doing seminars for a long time. And then I was teaching out in Austin for the better part of a year in 2020 as well. And I taught a bit out in Phoenix when I was there as well. I was doing the uh, 6 a.m. class at Oceanside for a while, too. And then I ended up moving. I moved to, uh, yeah, that was a fun one. Then I moved to Austin and came back. And now I'm just sort of covering for people when they can't cover their classes. How did you develop your teaching? Watching instructionals by people that I consider to be really good and going to seminars by people that I consider to be really good instructors and taking little bits and pieces of how they like to go about organizing their classes and showing a particular technique and drilling the technique and um, just kind of going from there. And then I sort of developed this process where I like to teach people just the same way that I, that I train things for myself. So I start out by getting a technique that I want to work on. And then generally it'll be maybe four or five steps or details for that technique. And then I learn those five steps and then I start drilling it. And then eventually I start doing live goes with it against people that I'm significantly better than. So white belt. And then eventually I'll work up to the blue belts. Let's say it's a triangle escape. I'll, I'll have a blue belt start with me in their triangle and I'll work this new technique and hopefully escape or get caught and then figure out what I did wrong and then do it again and escape and then work up to the purple belts, brown belts. And then eventually months down the road, I'll be able to hit it against the black belts, the people at my own level. So it's usually, I would say about a three month process from first learning a technique, drilling it, practicing it live goes against people that you're a lot better than, and then working your way up to being able to accomplish the technique against people that are at your own level. What do you think makes a a great instructor teacher? It's about knowing what the most important details are. Like one detail can make all the difference in the world. For example, if we took a heel hook, keeping your hands nice and high when you're trying to finish, keeping your hands up by your chin, keeping your elbows tight to your body, these things make all the difference in the world. So you could give somebody a bunch of details. Let's say you give them six details, but they may not retain any of that. But if you give them one detail that's of the utmost importance, it can make all the difference in whether or not they're successful with the technique. Improving your mobility and recovery will only benefit your BJJ, and as such, we highly recommend you try Yoga for BJJ at yogaforbjj.net. Use our code FWB, all uppercase FWB, to get 20% off your subscription, yogaforbjj.net. Can you give me another example of like one of those moments where you were at a seminar, you were watching a match, or you were watching an instructional where you were in a class, someone, someone came to you or something, and you observe something or someone told you something, you're like, holy smokes, this is, you know, this is going to change this particular concept. Yeah, I think uh, someone had mentioned to me when trapping arms, when you're on someone's back, when I have cross grips, so I have back control, I have cross grips, and I'm looking to trap one of their arms. So then it'll be my two arms against their one arm, right? Someone had mentioned that I'm always trapping the arm on the overhook side. So I have my seatbelt overhooking and underhook. I trap the arm that's on my overhook side. And when I get the arm trapped, the thing that allows them to free their arm is raising their shoulder up because their wrist is trapped underneath my leg. So they raise their shoulder up 
and lift their arm up high enough to get their arm free. So one thing that they had mentioned to me was to keep downward pressure with my overhook on their shoulder to prevent the shoulder from raising, which will in turn prevent the wrist from being freed. And I had never considered that. It's like, man, I had just started um, playing with trapping arms and I was getting frustrated with it because people kept freeing the wrist. You do all this work of getting cross strips, holding the arm in place, pushing it below their chest, trapping it, and then they would just free it. So somebody had noticed that, mentioned it to me, I started applying it and it just worked like really well right away. So that was one of those details that was a really big game changer. One of those details that just makes all the difference. Wow. That's making the gears in my head turn right now to just sit, sit, thinking about that concept. That's so interesting. <laughs> in the chaos of uh, a live role, you really can't do that many things at once. So if you just have one detail that you can really focus on, and it's one of those really important details that makes a significant difference. Hmm. So for me, being a good instructor is just somebody who's knowledgeable about the most important details of each different technique. I always ask, conversely, what makes a great student? You have to be disciplined enough to just show up day after day, multiple times a day. And you have to be able to retain knowledge well, being a quick study, somebody who can learn things fast and understands the process of drilling the move, applying the move against a little bit of resistance, working your way up to full resistance, and then working your way up to somebody at your own level. So I would say just disciplines of the utmost importance, just a student that is willing to show up every day, multiple times a day. I don't really believe in motivation. Motivation comes and goes. And most of the time, you don't really feel like getting out the door. But discipline is what allows you to realize that uh, you have to do it regardless of whether you're enthusiastic. You're not always going to be enthusiastic. More often than not, nobody wants to sit in traffic. But once you get in the gym, your attitude changes, you get into a training mode. So just being disciplined enough to get into the gym multiple times a day, I would say is one of the most important things a student can have. And then having the ability to retain knowledge well, understanding the process of how moves are learned and become a part of your game and um, just finding the best instructor that you can. Hmm. I assume you're taking your own medicine here. So I'm going to turn this around and ask you, how do you maintain this discipline? And have you always been uh, or highly organized and strategic about your jujitsu? When I'm about to compete is the time when I feel most hmm. of that push to get in there multiple times a day. So I would say one of the best ways that you can encourage yourself to get into the gym as much as possible is have competitions lined up. It's a great motivating factor. I know I just said motivation is a fleeting thing, but if you do have a competition coming up, you generally tend to train harder than if you're just uh, being a hobbyist. So setting goals, essentially working setting towards goals. Those. Setting goals are super important. Have goals, have small goals that lead up to the bigger goals that lead up to the biggest goals. So. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of like just your learn your personal learning as well, it sounds like this process, is this something that you formulated on your own or through trial and error? Or just um, reading and uh, watching the instructors that I thought were the best and going, going to their seminars and seeing how they organize their classes and what they put emphasis on, how they have people drill things, and then just cloning off of that applying it to my own game, and then applying it to my students that I'm teaching as well. 
we touched on earlier that you've you've been all over the place. You've traveled all over the place and you've, I'm sure, trained at all kinds of academies all over the world. So you've seen a lot of stuff. For those academy owners in your sort of general sort of consensus, what are some of the uh, the pros and the cons of academies that you've witnessed and what can you glean from that and share from that experience? I think it just goes back to having a really good instructor at your academy. I've been at schools where the primary focus is marketing and getting people in the door and getting as big of a student base as possible, but I didn't really care for it. I prefer to just go to a gym where the focus is on creating the best senpai. So the best uh, elite, like the top students in the school, if you can develop them to the point where they get to a world-class level, I think the rest of the student body tends to follow suit. So you develop high-level students, and then they in turn develop the up-and-coming students. So you've got your senior students and your junior students. But my focus whenever I teach is always on the senior students, finding the guys or the girls that have the most potential and trying to develop their game as much as possible. And then I think that they become the instructors down the road and they've learned how you teach and how you've implemented this successful program and bring their students up in the same way. Do you think jujitsu is a great landing spot for former athletes? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Because, um, it's one of those things that you can just go out and compete, you know, whenever you want to. Whereas if you were a football player or something, you can't necessarily compete once you hit a certain point. If you were in college and you played and you didn't get drafted, there's sort of a door that needs to be opened that it's not even your decision whether or not it gets opened. Whereas if you're a jujitsu athlete, you can go and compete anytime you want to. So it's a lot more uh, equal opportunity, I guess. I'm curious how your game has evolved and um, what do you wish you were better at? Um, I wish that my passing was better and I've been working on that a lot lately to develop that more. And I heard Ryan Hall say one time that uh, passing is generally the last skill that gets developed. So it makes Mm -hmm. sense that uh, it's been the last thing for me to get developed. And then just pure wrestling as well. I'd like to work on more in the future. So basically top game, uh, wrestling and top game are my main areas of focus at this point in my career. So then let's let's backtrack and talk about the evolution of your game. What did it look like sort of from beginning to where we're at now? What was the arc of, of that process? Yeah, it's funny. When it first started out, my wrestling was actually my strong point just from having wrestled a couple of years growing up. So I had a double leg and I had a sprawl, um, but I had no guard whatsoever. So when I first started deciding I was going to be like a full-time jiu-jitsu athlete and training for competitions, I started just on my butt and guard every single role because I recognized that that was the, the area that I need the most work in. And from there, I just got obsessive with playing guard to the point where I wasn't just trying to make up for lack of uh, ability anymore. I was trying to make my guard my strongest point. So I became a guard player. And then the legs and the kimura, um, the kimura was my first game, I guess, offensively, where I would use the Kimura to either get to an arm lock or to take the back. And I was hitting Kimuras from everywhere, bottom, top, defending takedowns with Kimuras, et cetera, and just Mm -hmm. using that to roll to the back, rolling Kimuras from the top. Um, And then from there, I started developing the lower body submissions, mostly after seeing the success that the DDS had had with uh, leg locks in competition. It still seemed like it was a bit of a secret weapon, whereas 
a lot of the guys that had come up in IBJJF didn't really focus on defending legs because the submissions were banned in these competitions, so they didn't have to worry about them. So I felt like there was a hole and a lot of people that I would be competing against games that I could exploit there if I really delved into these lower body submissions more. So the Kimura happened organically. It was just something that I started doing and it worked for me. And then the leg locks were more of a preconceived idea that if I really get good at these leg locks, I could have success with them at a high mm -hmm. level. I remember that used to be sort of the the smart notion. I remember when Eddie incorporated it into the into the system 100% and the fruit that that has yielded for the organization. It's uh, been amazing. Y your view on that bottom half of the waist game and where we are now in terms of the, you know, the leg game, the evolution of the attack and the defense. It's evolved massively even since I've been in the sport. And it used to be that if you could apply a heel hook relatively well that you were almost unstoppable and now it's gotten to the point where everybody has at least rudimentary level of leg lock defense so people are chaining these leg lock attacks with upper body attacks so somebody will turn and flee from a leg entanglement and then you'll come up on top or come up and attack the back mm -hmm. so i think that's how it's evolved just since the sort of naissance of the of the new leg lock game is that people are now chaining them and figuring out how to counter the leg entanglements to take in the back, to guard past me, et cetera. Can you tell me a time that you wanted to quit and why? I can't, to be honest with you. I've never considered quitting since I started and just felt like it was the right place for me to be focusing. My life's energy was doing this grappling thing. And it felt like no matter what, even if there were, um, obviously there's always going to be hiccups and uh, things don't go your way, et cetera. But it was always the case that I felt better and just more relaxed after I got done with training. So no matter what, even if I couldn't make a living with it, I would still want to be training as much as possible just because it's sort of a, keeps my, keeps my peace of mind. That's amazing. You know, despite all the traumatic injuries, and I'm sure we haven't even talked about all of the injuries that you've had, that you would still, at no point, we were like, this could be it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's not that tough. It's like MMA is definitely tougher. So at least you're not getting punched and kicked in the head. <laughs> Let's talk about competition a little bit and just general local competitions. I often get contacted by listeners who are in talking to a professional like yourself and other professionals. It may not seem like a big deal, but for a lot of these local like people that just are working day jobs, they enter their local tournaments. It's a big deal for them and they're not having success for, for whatever reason, right? And they just haven't achieved gold. Can you provide any kind of feedback or your thoughts on that? Yeah, it is, you know, very nerve wracking getting out there and competing in front of a crowd and presumably your family and friends are watching. So it's a big deal to you. You know, none of what we do really matters at the end of the day, whether it's a world championship in ADCC or a Naga, it really doesn't matter. It's just your own. You've imposed some sort of meaning onto this competition. But at the end of the day, the people that are supposed to be in your life, they're going to be in your life, whether you win a tournament or not, you know? So there's a lot more important things than tournaments. So I would say, just keep in mind that it's the same thing you do every single day in training. It's just you and another person rolling on a mat. That's something to keep in mind. So even though the promotion will try to make it seem like it's a very special event and they've got lights, maybe cameras, people, et cetera, 
just focus on the first principles. It's still just you and another person competing. So it's the same thing you do every day. You're just rolling. You don't have to do anything crazy. So keep that in mind. And then also just understand that uh, gold, you know, just showing up and competing the first time is the first main gold that, that you can get. Cause that takes really, it takes more balls than I would say most people have is just getting out there and competing in front of a crowd. And then if you're not happy with your competition success, just figure out exactly why are you losing? Like, how did you lose? Was it a submission? Well then focus your energy on defending that particular submission. Did you lose? Cause you got your guard passed. Well then it's time to start focusing on guard retention. Did you lose a decision? Well, then we have to figure out a way to score points or submit our opponent. So keep it basic. Be specific. Don't just be, oh, I lost. I need to go train more. Be specific. How did you lose? Why did you lose? And what can you do to improve to make sure that that hole in your particular game that led to the loss gets covered? You have so many victories in competition. I assume that you're dissecting your losses as well, and you will attack those particular issues. But do you look back on your victories also and critique those? Yeah. Sometimes you have victories that didn't even go as well as a, a loss may have. Like uh, you may have won, but you may have performed in a way that you felt like really wasn't up to snuff for your particular ability. Whereas you may lose to somebody who's just a lot better and you may have had a great performance against them. So win or lose, I always analyze what I could have done better and what I need to improve on. But it definitely seems like no matter how objective you can be about a win or a loss, the losses just always sting more. So you're always going to improve more after a loss than a win. Do you typically have strategies going into tournaments? Yes. Do you stick to the plan? Yeah, as best I can. Like my strategy for this last... EBI was to finish as many opponents in regulation as possible because I look at it like a marathon. So mm. you're trying to have the least amount of accumulated mat time by the time you get to the finals. And if you can finish everybody in regulation, that's going to save you a lot of energy that you're going to need for the finals. So finishing people in regulation was the strategy for that particular tournament. And then being being really solid with the overtime rounds in case it did go there. Just being unsubmittable in regulation, having an ability to submit the opponent, and then being ready for overtime if it comes to that. Subversive was mainly about not taking damage because I knew that we could win these matches regardless of whether or not it went to overtime or we finished in regulation. I was really confident in that. So my whole thinking behind it was... Why take shots to the head if we don't really have to? Like, we know we're going to be able to win no matter where this goes. So let's take as little damage as possible in getting there. What is your preferred rule set? You have so much experience in uh, EBI, and I've heard a lot of people say, you know, you're an expert in overtime. But I'm curious, what is your preferred rule set? My favorite to compete in is the EBI rules. I really like no time limit as well. Hmm. I like the ADCC rules as well. And I've been doing all those for about the same amount of time. The first trials I did for ADCC, I was a white belt and that was a 2015. I was doing uh, EBI back then and sub only as well. So I've been doing them all for pretty much the entirety of my career. I would say the best rule set is probably no time limit combat jujitsu, just because you get the clear, distinctive answer of who submitted and who surrendered. But then you also have a positional element to it where you can't just 
be getting mounted and having your guard passed over and over again and then pull off a heel hook. Because if you're getting mounted, you're getting your guard passed, that means you're, you're getting teed off on with the palm strikes too. So I'd like to see um, no time limit, combat jiu-jitsu, but with elbows, punches, and up kicks. Mm. I think that would wow. be the best. So just wrestling on the feet, but then full striking when, when someone's on the ground. That would be very interesting to see. Yeah, that'd be very cool. I think it'd be really boring, but if you chop it up and edit it just to the exciting parts and then the submission, obviously, or the TKO, however it finishes, would be uh, good. You can make it really entertaining. Why do you say that it would uh, be boring? Just because those no time limit matches, a lot of times they go for like two hours. Mm. And it's also, it would be more exciting than that just because there'd be strikes involved too. Whereas a lot of times those no time limit matches, you see somebody just getting mounted 10, 12 times. And then they stay covered up and then they eventually get their guard back. And then it happens again and just keeps going for hours. Whereas like if they had combat jujitsu, at least uh, somebody could be dropping elbows on top and forcing them to give up their back, et cetera. But yeah, I think just fan friendly wise, the no time limit matches tend to be problematic just because they can go on for so long. Do you like having a coach in the corner anymore? And how did that coaching experience for you look like? Did you have someone coaching for you in the corner at the beginning and or what? A lot of the time I would show up to competitions alone. And for the EBI rules, it's pretty basic. And I feel like I'm so experienced in the rule set that I don't necessarily need somebody yelling anything to me other than just how much time's left. But I've never been that big on having somebody in my corner. I've never felt like I needed it. It's definitely good to have somebody knowledgeable who can look at things from a third person perspective and just tell you something because you can't see everything that's going on uh, when you're out there. So it's good to have somebody that can just look objectively at the match and give you advice as needed. Now, it seems like we have an unspoken professional league. I don't see you at like opens and things like that. We see the same faces in these invitationals and these certain type of events that happen. Do you think there's that kind of uh, thing is happening? And what is your thinking why you're not jumping into various opens or local small tournaments and things? You know, it's funny you say that because I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to do a uh, Naga pretty soon here coming up, I think, just to like go back to basics and feel more sort of free and less nerves going in and competing. I think that's important sometimes, hmm. but uh, I don't know. I think, you know, for me, it's mostly just the money that's behind it. Like if I'm going to compete and travel and all that, I want to be getting paid or compensated. Sometimes you'll see a professional at, let's say, Jiu-Jitsu World League, which is a smaller type of event, local event, depending on what state you're in. And some people use it as like a tune-up, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. I think the more you compete, the better, really, just in terms of melting those nerves away. It's always good to uh, have a tune-up tournament before a big tournament. So then it's just like a bummer for the local guy who's uh, <laughs> we talked about earlier, right? Kayotera yeah, <laughs> showed up to a Naga one time and just oh. smashed everybody. Oh, jeez. So why don't we see you at the IBJJF Noki event? It's just no pay. Mm. If they were doing pay, I would be there. But there's just no money. So that's why we're not seeing other big names. Probably the reason. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It seems like they just really need to start paying some people or something, right? Yeah. And I think they do Grand Prix tournaments where they'll have a big cash prize. But in terms of just the actual worlds, I don't think that they pay anybody. There's some degree of prestige to it still, in a way, it seems like. Yeah, it for sure. And there's like uh, just a lot of hoops that you have to have to jump through to get in there. Like you have to have somebody sign off on you for being a black belt and they have to be a second degree black belt. 
I don't know. For me, it just seemed like to compete wasn't something I was really interested in. Let's talk about the new talent because you come from a world of pre sort of streaming instructionals and you've seen the evolution of all of that data coming online and you started the game a little later in life by today's standards. Now we're seeing, let's talk about like in the United States or globally now, children starting jujitsu and easily getting 10 years, 15 years in and they're phenoms. Are you seeing a lot of this happening? Yeah, totally. The Rutolos are a great example of that. They've been training since they were little kids. Right. And the Tackets as well have all been training since they were kids. So you see that more and more. And I think that uh, the days of people starting in their 20s or late 20s, like I did, uh, probably coming to a close if you want to be at a world-class level. It seems that it's gotten popular and widespread enough to the point where eventually it's going to be just people that started doing it when they were little kids. But I think that you'll, you'll always have those physical outliers like the Rodriguez brothers who both mm-hmm. got into it later, you know, although they had wrestled. You know, even in a sport like basketball, Akeem Olajuwon didn't start playing until he was 17. Somebody found him. He was playing soccer. They're like, what are you doing? You should be playing basketball. And like five years later or something, he was in the NBA. So you'll have a, a freak athlete who's huge with great footwork who could still get into it really late in life. But I would say the vast majority at a world-class level from here on out will probably be people that started when they were kids. And do you think there's also been improvements from a 360 perspective in terms of like instruction, conditioning, and coaching? Everything gets better as time goes on. So people figure out strength and conditioning, the techniques get better, they evolve, the instructionals themselves, the ability to disperse information all over the world, it's only getting better. It's really um, easy right now if you want to get the best technical advice you can on any particular area of jiu-jitsu, there's instructionals for everything now by the highest level instructors. What does your go-forward view of jiu-jitsu look like uh, in terms of the future? I see... ADCC remaining the most prestigious tournament. It's always attracted the highest level of competitors across the board, just because it carries the most prestige behind it. But I see sub only and EBI continuing to evolve as well. And I think that if you want to make the most money, you'll have to be able to succeed not only in the ADCC rule set, but in the EBI rule set and the sub only rule set as well. I see wrestling playing a significant part in the development of the sport, especially just considering how important it is for the ADCC rules. And we're getting some really high level wrestlers in our sport now, like Bo Nichols in the sport. I see a lot more people transitioning over Brandon Reed as well from high level wrestling careers where they graduate college and they decide that they want to continue being in professional athletics. So they go into either MMA or in grappling now and making a living that way. So I just see the athletes continuing to get better and better. The promotions getting bigger and bigger and slowly but surely the money and the prizes are are getting bigger as well. Can you mention some of the jujitsu practitioners past, present that have had a big influence on you? Yeah, probably starting out, Vinny Magulies was one of the biggest influences on me just because I had an opportunity to train with him in Vegas when I was a blue belt and learning a lot and seeing how successful he had been. I started trying to do some of the things he was doing, modeling off of some of the techniques that he used, the leg locks, the Kimura. He has a 10th planet black belt as well. So he was one of our guys. Gio as well, when I was first coming up, being my instructor, I always tried to try to figure out what he was doing differently, how he was training, how he was improving, et cetera. 
So just guys like that, guys that were around me that were having success in what I was trying to do when I was coming up. You have some instructionals out, I see, on uh, BJJ Fanatics. Yeah, so I've got uh, Nogi Defense and Escapes DVD and uh, Kimura Control DVD as well. Now, I know in the past you talked about, I think around 2020, you and someone doing some filming and maybe doing another instructionals. Did that ever evolve? Yeah, I'm going to get a leg lock DVD out there pretty soon. It'll be leg lock, offensive, defense, and just going over all the different leg entanglements, different offensive options from there, defensive options, counters, counters to the back, to passing, et cetera. So just a whole anthology of leg locking. Did you ever practice in the gi? I trained in a gi for about a month and I was a wipeout. I started off at Gustavo Dante's gym, who was the guy that Eddie had triangled in the first round of Abu Dhabi back in 2003. And Mm -hmm. um, then I learned that there was a 10th planet in Phoenix and all I really wanted to do was no gi. So I switched over to 10th planet. So Kyle, where can the listeners and all of us get more information about you and everything you're up to? If you just go on Instagram, I'm on there at KyleBame10P. I'm not too active on social media, but if you want to see what I've been doing, that's a good place to check out. Our YouTube is called Ronin Videos. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for all your time, and we appreciate you uh, being on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. I am your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Give us the whole thumbs up and the five stars in all the places. And thanks for listening again to Forever White Pelt. We appreciate it. Take care, everyone. See you next time.